follow along there. So, Ezra 4, starting in verse 1, the text reads like this. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Eshardon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the, Lord, or then, the, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Jumping down to verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tadani, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the, governor who were in, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report, in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber, and, t- and timber is laid in the walls. Their work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, uh, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought them into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. 
Then this Shesh Bezar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives that there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send his pleasure in this matter. Then Darius the king made a decree, and the search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. In Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits with three layers of great stone and great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon be restored and brought to the temple that is in Jerusalem each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are, who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons." Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who, uh, who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence." Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the, of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all, 12, for, for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel." And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. The purity 
of our church is at stake in the modern world. Many churches in our area have abandoned the gospel, trying to evict God from their church, who is really the owner of their house. Instead of embracing the doctrines that are clearly laid out to us in Scripture, they are embracing doctrines of this world, throwing Christ's name on them and defaming God's name entirely. Listen to what one pastor wrote about this very topic. He wrote this. He said, For there are some vain talkers and deceivers, not Christians, but Christ betrayers, bearing about the name of, of Christ in deceit and corrupting the word of the gospel. While they intermix the poison of their deceit with their persuasive talk, as if they mingled cyanide with sweet wine, that so he who drinks, being deceived by the sweet taste, may meet with his death unguarded. For they speak of Christ, not that they may preach Christ, but that they may reject Christ. They are ashamed of his cross, they deny his passion, and they do not believe in his resurrection. I'm sure that as I read that quote to you, that a couple of churches or a couple of preachers came to mind who reject these core tenets of our faith, but yet claim to be Christian. These are people who we are constantly praying for, that they would realize the error of their heretical views and repent before the Lord. See, denominations used to stand firm as they triumphed the gospel, but now they are really like jelly, being able to be pushed around by whoever comes to them. You see, it feels like there is more at stake than there ever once was. But what I didn't tell you about this quote that I read to you is that it's not from the modern day. This quote that I read to you comes from Ignatius of Antioch, an early church father who was martyred right about the beginning of the second century. See, I chose to modernize some of this language and withhold this information from you because I want you all to realize that the purity of the church has always been at stake. Our enemy, the devil, is trying to come at us and ruin the church that God has built. The enemy will use any tactic that they can to oppose the work of God's people, even claiming that they belong to God, but their hearts couldn't be further away from him. But the thing is, nothing that the enemy will ever do will stop the will of God from happening in our world. This means our God is watching his people He's been watching his people ever since the beginning. He continues to watch us in the present and will continue to watch us into the future until the end. You see, as we jump back into Ezra tonight, we will see clearly that God is with us in opposition. When the enemy tries to throw all that he has at us, we will always have the protection of God on our side because our God is sovereign. So tonight we are going to be looking at Ezra's, Ezra chapters 4 through 6, which I know is a huge section of scripture, but it really is one long story, so I think it'll be to our benefit that we look at this as one sermon tonight. So when thinking about God being with us in opposition, we will look at three things. We will first look at the coming opposition, we will look at how we are watched by God, and then we will look at victory in God. But before we jump into this text together, I want to give you a little bit of a history lesson that will help clarify what is happening here in Ezra 4 through 6. 
One of the things that we are used to as modern readers is reading a text that is always presented to us in chronological order. In the beginning, this happened, then this happened, and finally, in the end, this happened. But this isn't the only way to order a text. You see, in the ancient Near East, one of the ways that they would commonly order texts is by themes. So for Ezra 4 through 6 tonight, this section is curated with the idea of opposition in mind. In our text from tonight, we will be looking at stories that happened over a period of about 100 years. Can we get, I have a, I have a timeline that I'd like to show you all tonight. So it's, it's a lot easier to see when you're closer up. But there are five different kings that we will be seeing tonight. Actually, uh, so Ezra begins in the reign of Cyrus, We see in 538 BC, that is when the Jews returned. We will also see mention tonight of Darius, Ajuerus, and Artaxerxes, with Cambyses being the only king that's not mentioned, but he only had a short reign, so there is nothing in our story um, from, from his reign as king. So we begin with Cyrus, who is the one who decreed that the Jews could return in 538. And throughout the text, we will see the, these kings But the vast majority of Ezra that we will see happens between 536 and 516 BC. So that is where we will be focusing. But the author will jump around through other places in the text. But essentially the reason he is doing this is because our author wants us to see that in a sinful world, God's people will always be facing opposition. So if you would look at me, look with me at Ezra chapter four, we will see number one, the coming persecution. Read with me again, verses one through five. Text says, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Eshardon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So you see, after they had laid the foundation of the temple in Ezra chapter three, the locals who had been living in the area while Judah was in exile came to the leaders in Jerusalem and asked if they could help with the temple rebuilding. They came up with a reason for why they should be able to help with this rebuilding, saying that they have been worshiping the, uh, the, our God since Eshardon, king of Assyria, meaning that they had rights to this rebuilding effort because they had lived there for so long. But yet Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the leaders there in Israel tell them that they have no right to be building with them. You see, while we might think as we look at this text that the leaders of Israel are overreacting and being exclusivist, we must see that these people, although they may seem harmless, are not there to support Judah, but to harm them. 
See, verse 1 of chapter 4 specifically tells us that these people are the Jews' adversaries, implying that their request to help in this rebuilding of the temple is not a God-honoring one. This then serves as the inciting incident that brings upon them the Jews' opposition. When God's people try to honor God and serve him with their lives, they are always going to receive pushback from those who, whose hearts are opposed to God. The adversaries of the Lord are filled with a sense of conviction when they see somebody serving God. Because as Romans 2 verse 15 tells us, the law of the Lord is written on their hearts. They then inherently know that they are supposed to be serving the Lord, but because of their sin, they don't want to. So in their hearts, they become angry, hating that the conviction exists in their hearts and taking it out on the people that they see are trying to honor God so that way they can excuse their own sin. So for the enemies of Judah, they decide that they are going to oppose the rebuilding effort and try to altogether stop it. Verses four and five describe how they would intimidate and discourage the Jews to stop building, even going as far as bribing government officials to stop the work and frustrate the builders. The opposition would last all of the king of Cyrus, beginning in 538 BC upon their return, all the way through Cambyses' reign and into the reign of Darius, which began in 522 BC. This means that the Jews were facing direct opposition for building their temple for approaching 20 years. From verse 6, this is where it starts to get interesting and non-chronological as the author shifts to another example of opposition that the Jews faced in their general rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. During the reign of King Ahasuerus, which is the second to last king, who he reigned from about 485 to 464 BC, some of Israel's enemies wrote a letter against Judah, as well as a, le- a second letter during the, Art- the reign of Artaxerxes, who reigned from 464 to 423 BC. This letter to Artaxerxes is included here in Ezra chapter 4 to show exactly what type of opposition the Jews were facing. The letter itself that we see here in Ezra 4 is full of lies, calling, calling Jerusalem a wicked and rebellious, rebellious city, saying that they will not obey the king if they are to continue rebuilding. While the Jews were a rebellious city under the Assyrian and Babylonian kings in the past, they really are not much of a threat to the rule of Artaxerxes, making this letter that we see here incredibly exaggerated. The obvious response then for someone like Artaxerxes after receiving a letter of this nature was to command the construction in Jerusalem to stop. From this point on in in these future events, the construction would not start again under the reign of Artaxerxes until Nehemiah would return to Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 1. Ezra 4, the ending of the chapter, puts two periods on both stories. Concerning the Artaxerxes letter, the Jews were forced to stop rebuilding until Artaxerxes told them they could rebuild again. And then from the first story of opposition that we saw in verses 1 through 5, the work of the temple would cease until the second reign of Darius, 
which was starting in 522 BC. What is so great about the thematic placements of both of these stories right next to each other is that we are able to see the two types of opposition that the people of God will face in their lifetimes, each dealing with how power is exerted and who is exerting authority. Our first example of opposition that we see the Jews face is that of on a local level. Local level opposition is most clearly seen in the interpersonal relationships that God's people have with non-believers. This type of opposition feels very personal because we can see the tangible effects of this opposition immediately. For the Jews of this age, this was seen in the pressure that they were receiving from their enemies to stop building the temple. The enemies of the Jews would pressure the Jews with their own power to stop them from doing the things that were serving God. This type of opposition, because of its very personal nature, is incredibly uncomfortable and oftentimes very scary. For us in the modern day, what this might look like is people using their social pressure to stop us as Christians from speaking out against ethical issues. For instance, if you were to speak out against abortion, your opponent would then go on a tirade trying to convince you with their own faulty logic that you are wrong, calling you names in hopes that you would be scared to speak up in the future. Then the second type of opposition that we see here in Ezra 4 is that of national opposition. Instead of the oppressor trying to use their power to directly oppress you, they will direct their power towards the ruling authorities of that time who are over you, and then will use their power to appeal to the ruler's own self-interest and, and make laws and decrees that will overall encourage unrighteousness. In Ezra 4, this is Israel's enemies appealing to Artaxerxes to stop the construction of Jerusalem because they claimed that it would be bad for the kingdom. For us in the modern day, this looks like laws being passed about conversion therapy, banning Christians from being able to warn about the dangers of a sexually deviant lifestyle or the damage of sex reassignment surgery. See, these two types of opposition are always going to be around when we are in this world because they will always be directed toward the people of God. So us as Christians, it should be our job to expect this kind of opposition and plan for it, not letting it catch us off guard and stop us from faithfully serving our God. Think of it like a two-front war. In war, it is, a, for, it is a strategic advantage for your enemy to attack you from two different fronts. This will produce a lot of logistical difficulties for you as, the, as, as someone who is on the defensive as, the, as you will have to figure out how you will allocate your resources and defend yourself from the attack. In the spiritual war that is raging on in this world, our enemy, the devil, is trying to attack us at both a local and a national level, causing us to be confused and lose ground. But if we are prepared for attacks from both fronts, if we are able to stand up for Christian values and ethics, both at a local level and a national level, then we will be able to endure the opposition that is coming for us 
because we were prepared. Opposition has already come, and there is more coming, so we must be prepared. But lucky for us, the most important thing that we need to remember is that our God is on our side. Let's look together at number two, watched by God, which we find in Ezra chapter five through Ezra chapter six, verse 12. See, Ezra five then picks up again from the first story that we saw at the beginning of Ezra chapter four. It is now the second year of Darius's reign, 520 BC, and the Lord has used the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to tell the Jews that it is now the time to continue building the house of the Lord. In Haggai chapter 1 verse 13, we see the prophet Haggai approach Zerubbabel and Jeshua, characters that we have seen a lot through Ezra, and speak to them from the Lord, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. And after 10 years of nothing being built on the temple, the foundation has just sat there for a decade, but the building has begun once again. Their building efforts being rekindled does not go unnoticed. Immediately, a local governor, Tatnai, comes to question what the Jews are doing. You see, when Darius started to rule in 522 BC, there were a series of revolts that occurred against Darius. So Tatnai, as soon as he sees this rebuilding efforts begin again, he comes to figure out what is happening and make sure that they aren't planning another revolt. He approaches the Jews and asks them who decreed that they could build the temple and for the names of the people associated with this rebuilding effort. This is then where we come to a key verse that we see here in this section. Look with me at verse 5 of Ezra 5. He says, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. You see, God was faithfully watching over his people and helping them to continue their work even though another round of opposition had come their way. Instead of panicking at another roadblock, they trusted in the Lord and continued doing the work that his will was desiring. The Jews realized that their God was with them and there was no need to be hostile towards their opponents. They could respond in a very respectful manner towards Tatnai and his his associates, knowing that even though they were against what the Jews were doing, whatever happened, the Lord was going to be with his people. We see the letter that Tatnai wrote to Darius here in Ezra 5, verses 6 through 17, and where he specifically recounts his interaction with the Jews in verses 11 through 16, and how they answered him very plainly recalling to them the entire history behind why they are rebuilding this temple. The Jews' main thrust, though, of their reasoning is is because they they are doing what is lawful because they have been given permission by Cyrus, meaning that they had a legal backing for what they were doing. Because the Jews then acted so cordially, Tatnai writes to King Darius and asks there to be a search in the royal archives to see if what the Jews are saying is the truth. 
Darius obliges because of how respectful they have been. And eventually, the decree is, felled, is fined in Ekbatana, which is the summer capital of Cyrus during his reign. Everything that the Jews had reported had proved to be true, showing that they can be trusted by the king and his governors. You see, one of the major aspects of Darius' rule over all of Persia was to try and emulate everything that Cyrus had done, making similar laws and decrees that his predecessor had made. So when he found Cyrus' old decree, Darius decided that he was going to make a similar one. He declared that the temple in Jerusalem be rebuilt and sacrifices be made with Darius even going as far to provide to them his own sacrificial animals for the nation, showing that he had care for his subjects. It specifically says that he gave to them wheat, salt, wine, and oil as, as what was required by specific offerings that we find in the Levitical law. Again, showing that he cares for his people. These items were then given daily so that the Jews could worship Every day. Darius then finishes the decree by issuing a major punishment for any person who alters this edict, saying a beam will be taken off his house and they will be impaled with it, then making their house into a dunghill. See, what is so amazing about this part of the story is that even though the Jews were faced again with opposition, They knew that the Lord was on their side and that nothing would stop them from fulfilling the will of the Lord. Even with the potential punishment of the government looming on the horizon, the Jews continued on in confidence, not even stopping a day to stop their work. The Jews continued because they knew what the Lord had wanted for them. There was even confidence in their ability to keep a cool head knowing that what they were doing was the right thing. Even if it meant putting their potential future on the line, the Jews knew that they were making the right call. You see, when faced with opposition, we can know that our Lord is watching over his people. See, Jesus himself talks about a very similar thing, which we read at the beginning of the service in Luke chapter 21. Reading again Luke 21, verses 16 through 19, Jesus says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a head, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Being under the watchful eye of our Heavenly Father, we can know that we are under his protection at all times. Yes, opposition is coming our way. But we can also know that nothing that this world could throw at us is unknown by our Heavenly Father. Even when it feels like we are completely surrounded and drowning in opposition that the world continually throws at us, we always have a God who is not only there to help us keep afloat, but also brings us up to the surface of the water to walk on top of it. Some of you know, Hugh and I were at the FIEC Leaders Conference this week. On the second night that we were there, we had a prayer gathering and everyone in attendance came together to pray that the Lord would continue to do his work here in this post-Christian culture. 
We talked about how even though there were things happening in this world, that we have a loving heavenly father who watches after his people and gives gracious gifts to them. And then we broke out into prayer sessions with everybody there at the conference. One of the things that they asked us to do is to send stories of recent conversions in all of the churches that we have seen to a specific app that they had for the conference. And before we knew it, there were 150 stories of conversions in churches all over the country. What was amazing is that they weren't expecting that to fill up so much and 150 was the limit that we could reach in sending responses on the app. So that meant that that 150 stories that we received from people all over the country was just scratching the surface of what the Lord continues to do even in the midst of a post-Christian culture. It's truly amazing, and we praise God for that. And that is really an example of how our God continues to watch us even when we are faced with opposition. Although this world may feel like we are walking into darkness in this post-Christian world, God continues to do these amazing things. We are watched by God. He is working, or he worked through his people in Israel and he continues to work with his church today. So knowing that fact, we then should be placing our confidence in the Lord to continue that work into the future. We need to keep defending a gospel-centered life in this world even when there is opposition. For not a hair on our head will perish without that being the will of the Lord. And by that, we will also gain our life. Now quickly, let's look at the last half of Ezra 6, where we will see number three, victory in God. Ezra 6, verses 13 through 22, then focuses on the finishing of the temple and the celebration of the Passover. The Lord has been with the Jews through the entire process and has finally given them victory in the completion of the temple. They can't help but celebrate the dedication of the house of God, offering sacrifices to God for his faithfulness. It would then not be any more fitting because the Jews directly after this celebrated the Passover. If you will recall, the Passover was the first Passover was celebrated when God had delivered his people Israel from the Egyptians in Exodus, making the Passover all about celebrating the deliverance that we have in God. It fits perfectly then that the Jews celebrate the Passover here, remembering not only God's deliverance of them in the past, but also seeing the tangible effects of God's deliverance there in the present time. They could join together in a joyful feast, praising the Lord for the victory that he has provided to his people. You see, celebrating the victory that the Lord gives us is important in the lives of God's people. Throughout history, God has constantly delivered his people from his enemies, proving time and time again that he is a gracious God, moving us to worship and celebrate in that victory. While all of these victories are amazing, all pale in comparison to the greatest victory that God's people will celebrate in. At the end of days, our Savior Jesus will return to this world and will bring all of his people to dwell with him once again. The final judgment will come and all unrighteousness and sin will be squashed and destroyed forever. 
At that point, all of God's people will celebrate in the greatest victory that could be ever had as our Savior Jesus has overcome the world and has made all things new. This is the hope that we as God's people can celebrate. Even though the end has not yet happened, we know that it has been written, that the victory is secure in Christ. So as we face the opposition of this world, as sin and unrighteousness seem to have a firm grasp on the culture and tempt us to lose hope, let us remember what grace we have received and where our hope is placed in. Let us look to our Savior Jesus, the Son of God, who has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness by washing away our sins and giving to us his righteousness. Then let us use this assurance that our God has given, that our God has given to us because he is with us and because our victory is secure. And that should motivate us to stand up for God's righteous standard, not only in our personal relationships, but also on a national level. But let's not be moved to anger or irritableness as our temptation would want us to do, but let us face it tactically, being cool-headed and collected like the Jews were, knowing that God's will will be done. Our victory in Christ is secured there is nothing that, we, that anybody could do for that victory to be taken away from us because the watchful gaze of our God is on us. If you're joining us tonight or if you're watching online and you have yet to experience that victory for yourself because you have yet to know Christ for yourself, then I would encourage you, repent of your sins, fall before Christ and join in to his victory Experience it for yourself. Join into the celebration that we as a church participate in every week, celebrating the victory that our God has given to us. You see, just as the darkest night is always broken up by the first light of dawn, so we know that the hardest opposition that we will face will be met with victory in Christ. Let me finish tonight with a quote from John Newton. He says, we must expect some opposition along with many temptations and trials, but we are engaged in a good cause and we have a mighty savior, a compassionate friend, a prevailing advocate. He knows our path. He sees your conflicts and he is engaged to support, to guide and to guard you and at length to make you more than conquerors to bestow upon you a crown of everlasting life. Amen. Let's pray.